As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On a chilly evening in March of 1987... 18-year-old high school senior Diana Braungard was working a late shift at her part-time job in the local mall. At precisely 10.02 p.m., Diana clocked out and walked out of the store heading for her car. She never made it home, and when her parents reported her missing, detectives discovered that she'd never made it to her car. The investigation kicked off with haste, but detectives had little to work with. There were no fingerprints, direct witnesses to the crime, or any evidence to show that a crime had even been committed. Despite a witness who saw Diana speaking to an unidentified man and exhaustive searches, no trace of the missing woman was ever found. Over the years, investigators began wondering if Diana had been the victim of a serial predator. Several different names have been considered over the years, from Tommy Lynn Sells to Larry Dwayne Hall, and many others in between. More than 35 years later, the questions still remain. What happened to Diana that cold March night? Who was involved and why was Diana targeted? This is Trace Evidence, Episode 211, The Disappearance of Diana Braungard. Welcome to Trace Evidence. I'm your host, Stephen Pacheco. Today, we examine the mysterious 1987 disappearance of Festus High School senior, Diana Braungard. Before getting into the case, just a few quick notes about the show. Trace Evidence is a weekly true crime podcast focused on unsolved murders and disappearances. Visit trace-evidence.com for all social media links, episode breakdowns, donation options, and contact information. You can submit case suggestions through the website or by emailing me directly at traceevidencepod at gmail.com. As one final note, this year CrimeCon is taking place in Orlando, Florida, and I'll be there representing Trace Evidence on Podcast Row. Over the last few years, I've had the privilege to meet and talk with so many listeners of the show, both new and original. Attending CrimeCon has become an annual tradition for me, and with each new year, it gets bigger and better. 
CrimeCon will be taking place from September 22nd to 24th at the World Center Marriott in Orlando, and I'm really hoping to see you there. Whether you're thinking about attending your first CrimeCon or returning for another exciting year, you can save 10% on your pass by using the promo code TRACE at CrimeCon.com. Save some cash, take a trip, and stop by Podcast Row to say hello. Visit CrimeCon.com and use promo code TRACE to save 10% off your pass today. More than 35 years ago, 18-year-old Diana Braungard walked out of her part-time job at the Twin City Mall and vanished. All that was left behind was her car and the belief that the teen had been forcibly abducted. Now, nearly four decades later, the mystery of Diana's disappearance continues to endure, and those who loved her continue to seek out her fate. This is episode 211, The Disappearance of Diana Braungard. As night fell over Crystal City, Missouri, temperatures plummeted into the mid-30s as frigid winds swept in from the northeast, forcing people to cling tighter to their coats, tucking their faces down beneath unfolded collars. Dim glowing porch lights dotted the avenues as fragments of light peered out from behind drawn curtains, painting complex mosaics along the cracked and beaten blacktop of heavily traveled streets. All across the city, families gathered together to sit down to warm dinners, discussing their days and plans for the coming weekend. Elsewhere, others moved along the busy streets seeking a little excitement. For some, their path would lead them to a local bar or restaurant for a drink. For others, they ran errands, trying to squeeze in a little shopping before settling in for the night. As traffic lights illuminated the gathering mist in muted shades of red and green, one bright glow pierced through the night. Countless lights cast a steady glow like a brilliant glass dome around the perimeter of the Twin City Mall, a popular spot in Crystal City, which was home to numerous stores from gift shops to young fashion to old school department stores. Hundreds of cars sat side by side in long rows as the busy time of evening peaked. Each hour that passed saw fewer and fewer vehicles lying in wait as a slowly shifting stream of brake lights maneuvered out of the parking lot and onto the main road. As the clock approached 10 p.m., several mall employees would clock out, dashing through the bitter cold night as they rushed to their cars and hoped the heat would kick in quickly. Inside the local Venture, a discount department store, 18-year-old Diana Braungard was clicking away on the register as she rang out her last few customers. Moments later, she stepped out from behind the counter and made her way towards the employees-only area. There, she grabbed her short black coat, a favorite possession which had previously belonged to her older brother. Securing the coat close to her body, Diana grabbed her time card and fed it into the clock until the internal mechanism sprung to life and stamped down the time she ended her shift. Diana, who worked at the store part-time, was in a rush to get home that night. She had a lot of studying to do with tests coming up at school the next day. While several co-workers asked about her plans for the evening, Diana made it clear she needed to get home and hit the books. Moments later, she strode out of the store, stepping out into the cold parking lot as she made her way towards her family's bright yellow Ford Escort. The high school senior never made it home that night. In fact, it appears she never even made it as far as her car. Somewhere in the few hundred feet between the store and her vehicle, something, or someone, came along, 
leading to one of the longest and most mysterious missing persons cases in Missouri history. More than 30 years later, and the questions still remain unanswered. What happened to Diana Brongard? Why was she targeted? And who was waiting to strike in the icy darkness of that mall parking lot? Diana Jane Brongard was born on Friday, January 31, 1969. As an infant, she was adopted by Robert Marvin and Loretta Jane Brongard, their second child, as they had adopted Diana's older brother, Daniel, a few years earlier. Both Robert and Loretta went by their middle names, Marvin and Jane, and each was employed by the United Methodist Church, where Marvin was a reverend. The Brongards were described by family and friends as a tight-knit, loving family who doted on their children and wanted to provide them with the best of life possibilities. Diana and her brother would be raised in tight conjunction with the church as faith was strong inside the Brongard household. Many have described Diana as a bright, fun-loving, kind, and caring young woman. She was popular with a wide circle of friends and very intelligent, performing well in school and always focused on keeping her grades high. She was dutiful in her studies, praised by teachers, and considered one of the brightest students at Festus High School. Many people have pointed out Diana's appearance, noting that she was a very attractive young woman who had her share of suitors, though she didn't seem overly concerned about dating and relationships. She placed more importance on her friends, her schoolwork, and her job. She'd picked up work as a part-time cashier at the Venture Store in the Twin City Mall, located less than a mile east of her family's home in the 800 block of West Main Street in neighboring Festus. At the time, Diana was driving her family's car, a yellow 1982 Ford Escort. It wasn't the flashiest-looking vehicle, but it got the job done, ushering Diana from home to school to work and back. Like many teenagers her age, approaching graduation, she wasn't exactly sure what she wanted to do with the rest of her life. Her interests were wide and varied, perhaps leading to a situation where so many different paths are open that it becomes difficult to narrow it down. While Diana may not have been sure how she planned to spend her future, there was one area that had recently caught her eye. People were always commenting on Diana's physical appearance, complimenting her and telling her that she should go into modeling. Some of this seems to have broken through as, in the weeks leading up to her disappearance, the 18-year-old enrolled in a local modeling class, and according to everyone who knew her, she was extremely excited to attend. Tragically, Diana would never finish her modeling classes as she would mysteriously vanish from the Twin City Mall parking lot on a chilly Wednesday night in the winter of 1987. Wednesday, March 11th, began as a typical day in the Braungard house. Diana awoke and began her morning routine, getting ready for the day ahead and grabbing a quick bite of breakfast before heading off to school. According to all information available, nothing was out of the ordinary throughout most of the day and Diana attended school without issue. Later that afternoon, she climbed back into the yellow Ford Escort and made the five-minute drive to the Twin City Mall, today referred to more commonly as Twin City Plaza. Pulling into the lot, Diana walked briskly across the parking lot and entered the Venture Store, hanging up her coat and clocking in for her shift, where she'd be working the cash register for the next few hours. According to co-workers, Diana was her normal bubbly self that night, Nothing appeared to be bothering her. She didn't report any issues, and if anything, the primary focus of her mind at that time was getting home and studying. As always, 
Diana put her studies above many other aspects of her social life, so while friends were looking to hang out, she was insistent that she needed to get home and get some work done. As 10 p.m. approached, Diana finished ringing up her last few customers and ended her shift. Her time card would later show she had clocked out precisely at 10.02 p.m., and considering the short walk to her car and the quick drive home, she should have arrived back at West Main Street no later than 10.20. When that time came and went, both Marvin and Jane took notice, considering it odd that she hadn't come home yet. At the time, they weren't overly concerned, but did consider it to be out of Diana's normal behavior. Even if she were only going to be a few minutes late, she would normally call and let her parents know. This night, however, the phone had been silent. As Marvin would later tell the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, quote, she never let us wonder where she was, end quote. As each minute ticked by with greater anticipation, the clock steadily moved towards 11 p.m. When the hour struck and there was still no sign of Diana, Marvin and Jane decided to drive over to the mall to find out what was going on. Maybe she'd experienced car trouble or had gotten stuck working later and didn't have the time to call. Minutes after backing out of their driveway, the brawn guards turned into the mall parking lot. It didn't take long to find Diana's car. The bright yellow paint stood out in the bright glow of their headlights. The vehicle was sitting in the same spot Diana had parked it in hours earlier. By this time, the vast majority of stores were closed, leaving much of the parking lot in darkness, outside of the buzzing illumination of dim store logos mounted on the wall's edifice. Stepping out from the vehicle, Marvin and Jane approached the yellow escort and found the door still locked and frost building up on the windows. It was quite clear the car hadn't been accessed or started for several hours. That being the case, the brawn guards were left to wonder if perhaps Diana had gone out with a friend or caught a ride elsewhere and had either forgotten to inform them or had thought she'd be back earlier. Not yet certain that something was severely wrong, Marvin and Jane returned to their home and while they awaited contact from Diana, Jane began going through their address book. Over the course of the next few hours, she called everyone Diana knew, waking some in the middle of the night, wondering if anyone had seen or knew where their daughter was. One call after another, they received the same response. No one had any idea where the 18-year-old might be. Early in the morning of Thursday, March 12th, Approximately eight hours after Diana had last been seen, her parents picked up the phone and dialed 911. There was somewhat of a jurisdictional debate at the time as Diana lived in Festus with her parents, but had disappeared from Crystal City, so it had to be determined which department would take the lead. Ultimately, the Crystal City Police Department took control of the case while the Festus Police aided with support. Almost from the outset, Detectives found themselves behind the eight ball with few, if any, clues, no solid leads, and a lot of unanswered questions. Arriving at the mall, investigators examined Diana's car, but came to the same conclusion that her parents had. Whatever had happened to her that night, she'd never made it to the car. There was nothing to suggest the vehicle had been entered or started since Diana parked it earlier in that afternoon, and a sweep for evidence came up empty. No fingerprints, fibers, hairs nothing to link any suspect to the vehicle. Assuming, based upon the lack of evidence, that Diana may have been abducted from the parking lot, detectives began searching the area around the mall. They were specifically looking for any items which may have belonged to Diana, her purse, keys, or any personal effects. Their search focused in on the parking lot, 
the landscaping surrounding the mall, and every trash can and dumpster accessible to the stores there. When these searches yielded no results, the circle expanded wider. Despite multiple officers digging through trash, not a single item believed to have belonged to Diana has ever been found. While investigators were not able to find any evidence connected to Diana or her abductor, going back through recent cases, they did find something strange about the Venture store where she had been working. Six weeks prior to Diana's disappearance, a gunman had forced his way into the Venture store where 15 employees were held hostage while he robbed them. As of the time of Diana's disappearance, the suspect had neither been identified nor captured. Four weeks later, and just two weeks before her disappearance, an employee finished a shift at the Venture store and came out into the parking lot to find that their tires had been slashed. Again, it appears the motive behind the slashing nor the suspect was ever identified or captured. This led to an early theory that perhaps Diana's abduction wasn't necessarily about her. While investigators couldn't rule out the possibility that she had been specifically targeted or happened to catch the wrong person's eye that night, they also couldn't be certain whether or not the crime was about Diana or that location. Unfortunately, like with so much of this case, they simply didn't have any evidence to link the disappearance to any of the crimes committed in and around the Venture Store in the earlier weeks. With no solid evidence and nothing to confirm that a crime had taken place, detectives began considering the possibility that Diana could have chosen to go off somewhere. Given that she had been adopted, one theory posited that perhaps the missing 18-year-old had gone off to find her biological parents. Any theory revolving around the idea that Diana had left of her own accord, however, was quickly dismissed by both family and friends. A few weeks earlier, Diana had gotten into an argument with her parents. In frustration, she decided to spend the night with a friend, and while investigators considered it possible something similar could have happened here, Marvin and Jane didn't agree. Even in that earlier instance, they noted, Diana had called them to tell them where she was, called home several times while she was at her friend's house, and returned home at the date and time she said she would. Apparently, in response to the altercation, Marvin and Jane were being very welcoming to Diana in her return and tried to make everything as nice as possible at home. This went so far that, according to some friends, Diana felt like she had gotten one over on her folks, with Lieutenant Steve Meinberg telling the Post-Dispatch, quote, Since then, she's told friends that she'd love going home, that they're treating her like a queen, end quote. In regard to the possibility of Diana seeking out her biological family, the Braun guards didn't think this was a high probability. According to Marvin and Jane, they had sat Diana down and explained that she was adopted, just as they had done with their son Daniel. At that time, they offered to assist Diana in tracking down and locating her biological family if that was what she desired, but Diana wasn't interested. According to the family, Diana viewed Marvin and Jane as her only parents, and she had no desire to try and track down the people who had given her up for adoption. With the possibility that Diana had run off almost entirely ruled out, that left only one thing to consider, foul play. Just a few days later, that possibility came blasting through loud and painfully clear. On Monday, March 16th, the Braun guards received a call every family of a missing person fears and dreads. A local man, 73-year-old David Cross contacted authorities when he came upon mutilated human remains, which had been jammed into a 3-foot, 18-inch deep footlocker 
which was then secured by a nylon strap. Cross found the footlocker off Duke Road, a gravel roadway two and a half miles east of Augusta, 35 miles as the crow flies northwest of the Twin City Mall. The body was missing the head, hands, and legs below the knees. According to the coroner, it appeared the body had been dead for between 24 and 48 hours. At the time, it was considered possible that the victim may have been Diana. For several days, the family struggled with their growing grief and pain at that possibility, until finally, the Crystal City Police ruled Diana out. For the Braungard family, it was a combination of relief and fear. This time it wasn't Diana, but what about next time? Unfortunately, the Braungards would go through this horrible roller coaster of emotions many times over the next few years. In hopes of gathering up information which may lead them in a new direction, investigators conducted a series of interviews with family, friends, and coworkers. Unfortunately, no one had any idea what could have happened to the high school senior. She wasn't having problems with anyone, hadn't mentioned being fearful or worried about any particular person, and certainly hadn't mentioned anything about running off. Friends noted that Diana had too much to stick around for. She was a few months away from graduating, was super excited about the modeling classes she was taking, and was looking forward to a summer vacation to Florida. In fact, Diana had just asked her boss for vacation time for that trip. Not only did investigators struggle to find anyone who might have had helpful information, they struggled to find anyone who could think of anyone else who might not have liked Diana. In an interview with the Bellevue News Democrat, investigators noted that the parking lot at the mall had been mostly empty when Diana had gotten off her shift. The likelihood of someone stalking around the parking lot looking for someone to abduct was somewhat limited, but given the bright color of the vehicle, it was partially theorized that the suspect may have focused in on the car and waited to see who was coming out for it. However, there was also a theory that the person who abducted Diana may have been in the venture store that night. Diana may, in fact, have been the cashier who rang this person out. This concept sparked several employees at the store to remember a customer who had behaved somewhat strangely that night. Several co-workers told investigators that on the night of March 11th, the last customer Diana had checked out lingered after completing his purchase. Crystal City Police Chief Glenn Boyer explained the details, saying, quote, he was either the last one or one of the last people to come through the checkout line where Diana was working. Once he went through, he stood around as though he might be waiting for someone. End quote. While Chief Boyer noted that investigators very much wanted to speak with this man, they did not consider him a suspect and were hoping instead that perhaps he may have seen something or someone in the parking lot that night. Luckily for them, Diana's co-workers were not the only people who got a look at an unidentified man hanging around the missing woman that night. Reportedly, investigators were contacted by a female witness who stated that she had driven into the mall parking lot that night and saw a woman she believed to be Diana speaking to a yet unidentified man. The woman, who was traveling with her baby, had stopped in the parking lot in order to change a diaper. While the woman didn't pay close enough attention to know any details of the words exchanged between Diana and the unknown man, she did find the encounter grabbed her attention for reasons she couldn't quite describe. Given that she was changing her baby and shuffling around in her vehicle, she didn't get a super close look at the man, but she had gotten enough to give investigators a description from which a composite sketch was created. 
Working in conjunction with Child Find Missouri, the composite was created and immediately distributed to the local media and added onto flyers, hundreds of which were already blanketing all of Crystal City and Festus. According to the witness, the unknown man was described as being a white male between the ages of 35 and 40. He stood approximately 5 feet 5 inches tall, was clean-shaven with dark hair and a dark complexion. Perhaps the most notable feature was a series of small bumps the witness observed on his face. While it has never been 100% confirmed by law enforcement, it has been noted that the description of the man seen in the parking lot closely resembles the description given of the man who had been wrung out by Diana that night. On the afternoon of Monday, March 16th, the Crystal City Police received a call from a woman who reported seeing someone who she believed closely resembled Diana. According to her report, as she was driving along a highway south of Festus one day earlier, she had passed a young female dressed in a short black coat similar to the one Diana had been wearing. The witness told investigators that she had spotted the unidentified woman resting against a bridge railing on Interstate 55 South. Given a description and a specific location, a patrol unit was sent out to search the area, but by the time they'd arrived, the unknown woman was gone. Whether or not this was Diana Braungard is unknown. However, this sighting would lead her parents to fear that perhaps their daughter had been abducted twice. Once from the mall parking lot, and then perhaps her abductor had thrown her out along the interstate, at which time someone else could have taken her, especially if she had been traumatized or otherwise assaulted. For their part, law enforcement never commented on this possibility. Sadly, within a few weeks of the investigation kicking off, detectives were already running out of leads and hitting dead ends. By June, three months had passed, and investigators were no closer to finding any answers. Despite the composite being out in the public and a lot of calls coming in with possible identifications, they couldn't land on any one particular person. Within 90 days of the case beginning, the Crystal City Police were quite frank with reporters, stating that they had no idea where she was, who might have taken her, nor whether she was even dead or alive. For the family, the passage of time had not made things any easier, as Jane explained to the Post-Dispatch, saying, quote, At first, we cried an awful lot, but now we have only one crying spell a day. The hardest thing is for me to think what she might be going through. We have no idea if she is dead or alive. I could endure the pain if I knew she wasn't in pain. It seems like when we're eating the evening meal, we realize the day has come to a close and we still haven't found her. End quote. Three months later, six months after Diana's disappearance in September of 1987, both the FBI and the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department completed reviews of the case files, offering their thoughts and insights to the Crystal City Police. Unfortunately, much as the initial investigators had concluded, it seemed most likely that Diana had been abducted from the parking lot, but as to who may have been responsible, they didn't have any answers. For their part, the debate was split into three distinct possibilities. That Diana was targeted by someone she knew, that her abduction was possibly tied to an unknown serial killer, or that the crime was one of opportunity, random, with little motive to help determine a suspect. By September, Diana's classmates were moving on with their lives, heading off to college to begin the next step following that summer's graduation. For the Braungards, 
what was supposed to have been a time of joy and celebration as their beloved daughter moved into the next phase of her life, it was instead filled with pain, grief, and a desperate desire to find the truth. The unknown man seen speaking with Diana in the parking lot that night remained unidentified, and investigators have not received any calls from anyone who claimed to be that man, nor anyone who could positively identify him. In hopes of drumming up more tips, Child Find Missouri issued a $500 reward. That was subsequently increased to $2,000 and was later increased to $10,000. It remains unclaimed. Asked his thoughts about the case six months later, Chief Boyer noted that while more time passed, the less hope there would be for a happy ending, he wasn't quite ready to give up. He explained, quote, Normally, if there was foul play involved, we would have a body. The further we go along, the more optimistic I'm becoming that she just ran off, end quote. It was later reported that detectives had spent more than 1,200 man hours investigating the case and nearly a year later had very little to show for it. Outside of a lot of wild rumors and speculation, the mystery surrounding Diana's disappearance remained unimpeachable. On Tuesday, March 22nd, 1988, a human skull was discovered at the SF Scout Ranch south of Farmington, approximately 50 miles south of Crystal City. Investigators working the case in St. Francois County contacted the Crystal City Police about the possibility that the skull could belong to Diana. In response, investigators sent dental records to the detectives. Noting that they had no evidence to consider a possible link, Lieutenant Paul Jones, commander of the Highway Patrol's satellite station at Flat River, explained simply, quote, She is just the first one that came to mind immediately. End quote. Once again, the Braun Guards suffered through the uncertainty of wondering while comparisons were made between the unidentified skull and Diana's dental records. Several days later, the news was released that, just like a year earlier, this unidentified victim was not Diana and her dental x-rays had ruled her out. For them, it was another moment of pain and despair. They were able to find some positivity in the fact that no evidence had been found to confirm that Diana was dead, but at the same time, living with the unknowing was already more difficult than they could have ever imagined. Unfortunately, the remainder of 1988 would pass without any further developments, and soon, March rolled around once again, marking two years since Diana had disappeared. Jane was quite blunt with reporters when asked how she and the family were holding up two years later, saying, quote, two years has not made a difference in our feelings. We're not settling in. We're not used to it. I haven't accepted it, end quote. Chief Boyer of the Crystal City Police was also interviewed for the article marking the grim anniversary. He admitted that he and his investigators remained baffled, telling the Post-Dispatch, quote, the only solid piece of evidence we have is that she's gone. We have received and investigated numerous, I'm talking in the thousands of leads on the case. There hasn't been a day gone by since she disappeared that we haven't spent some amount of time investigating that case. It's almost like she walked out that front door of the store and vanished into the twilight zone. End quote. Crystal City investigators had sent Diana's photo and description to different law enforcement agencies throughout the country. Nearly daily, detectives looked into the discovery of unidentified human remains across the country in hopes of determining any potential connection, but none ever panned out. 
Detectives noted that while they lacked much evidence in the case, the most frustrating aspect of the investigation was chasing down rumors and speculation, almost all of which led to dead ends or could be tracked back to someone who had no direct link to the case. In hopes of contributing to the case and perhaps exploring avenues which had been previously missed or ignored, the Braungard family hired a private investigator. Jacqueline Corey worked with the Braungards almost since the day they reported Diana missing, and she became close with the family and deeply involved in the case. Asked her thoughts about the rumor mill with which detectives were contending, Corey replied, quote, There's always somebody who absolutely knows. That's how it comes to us. I've spent days, months, tracking it back to the friend, the neighbor, the cousin, and finally he says, well, it's just what I heard, end quote. By two years later, Corey estimated she had spent approximately 10 hours a week working on Diana's case, and weekly she would stop by the Braungard home to go over the files and discuss the case with the family. There, they keep their own investigative notebooks and folders, filled with interviews of family and friends, and anonymous tips that have been called in, detailed reports about polygraph examinations which had been given to Diana's closest friends, and a detailed report from a hypnotist who had worked with another one of Diana's friends. According to Corey, her investigation mostly squared with the Crystal City Police Department as she could find no one who believed Diana was upset or planning to run off nor could she find anyone who believed someone would have wanted to harm the missing woman. While both Marvin and Jane tried to cling to the hope that Diana would be found alive, the passage of years had them leaning more towards the likelihood that if the case ever got solved, Diana would not be coming home safe. Marvin had a frightening experience in which, for a fraction of a moment, he allowed himself to consider the idea that his daughter was still alive out there and trying to make it home. He explained, quote, A call came on our telephone one night. This girl, a little kiddish-sounding voice, said, Dad? It just kind of went through me like electricity. My knees gave out. We had it on tape. We listened to it later, and it didn't really sound like Diana at all. But just hearing that voice on the phone saying, Dad, it was too much. End quote. Sadly, that call was determined to have been a heartless prank but the impact of that remote possibility of the slightest chance that it was real resounded for the entire family. Once again, Diana's case began growing cold, but hers was far from the only one. In February of 1991, just shy of the four-year anniversary of Diana's disappearance, the Missouri Highway Patrol and the FBI began investigating a series of unsolved murders and disappearances under the belief that some of the crimes may have been committed by a yet unidentified serial killer. Sergeant Don Bazelli of the Highway Patrol explained to the Post-Dispatch, saying, quote, I'm not ready to say there's a serial killer, but I'm trying to find out. There are a lot of similarities. Anything is possible. End quote. All of the victims were white. Most of the victims had been strangled, and almost all had been sexually assaulted. In each case, the scene of the murder was unknown, with the bodies being dumped in predominantly rural areas. While three were discovered in St. Louis and St. Louis County, the others were found in a stretch of land ranging from 75 miles north of St. Louis to 100 miles south to 50 miles east, crossing into Illinois. While at the time, investigators believed a serial killer may have committed some or all of these crimes, many of them have since been solved or closed, 
with suspects charged and sentenced and few connections between them. In the interest of thoroughness, we'll go through the list and include what has changed in the years since this list was compiled. The first victim on the list is 11-year-old Elissa Self Braun, who vanished on her way to the school bus on the morning of January 11, 1991. Four days later, on January 15th, her body was retrieved from the St. Francis River in Wayne County, 100 miles south of St. Louis. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled. 28-year-old Martin Link was later arrested and charged with this heinous crime. He was ultimately found guilty when blood matching Alyssa's was found inside of an item in Link's vehicle. Link was executed via lethal injection in February of 2011, more than 20 years after the murder. He has also been tied to several other sexual assaults and robberies. 18-year-old Stephanie Renee Hoagland was last seen by friends at a wedding reception in Lincoln County on January 5, 1991. Two days later, her partially clad body was discovered face down in a ditch along Missouri Highway W. She had been bludgeoned to death. DNA evidence recovered on Hoagland's body was connected to Michael Edward Dowell in 2006. Despite tons of evidence linking Dowell to the murder, the case against him never led to a conviction as a lack of evidence and screw-ups in police procedure left far too much room for reasonable doubt. Primarily, Dowell's defense attorney argued that since the DNA found did not include sperm cells, there was no evidence of sexual assault. The defense also argued that the DNA found on the victim could have been from days before she was murdered. 31-year-old Constance Zaleski was last seen on October 13th when she climbed out of a friend's car following an argument and stated she planned to walk home. One day later, her body was discovered in underbrush near the Big River in St. Francois County. Her cause of death was determined to have been strangulation. In June of 2000, 46-year-old Louis W. Burgess admitted to committing two homicides in California. Formerly a long-haul truck driver, Burgess also confessed to the murder of Constance Zaleski. After waving extradition back to Missouri, Burgess explained that he had come upon Constance outside of a gas station and offered her a ride. After convincing her to return to his apartment with him, the two drank alcohol and smoked marijuana. However, when Constance decided to leave, Burgess bound her with rope and sexually assaulted her. He then used more rope to strangle her and sat in the house with her body for a period of time before moving her into his car and dumping her. On August 26, 1990, the body of an unidentified woman was discovered north of Louisiana, Missouri in Pike County, approximately 75 miles north of St. Louis. The victim, who had been killed by way of blunt force trauma to the head, was determined to have been dead for between three and five days. 27 years later, in September of 2016, the victim was positively identified as Cynthia Louise Day, a mother of two who had been reported missing from National City, Illinois, the same month her body was found. Cynthia's death was officially ruled a homicide and remains open today, although for many close to the case, they believe Cynthia's then-boyfriend is the prime suspect. On July 20th, 1990, a maintenance crew discovered the decomposing body of an unidentified female in a soybean field approximately 40 feet north of Lebanon Road near Troy and O'Fallon Roads in Jarvis Township, Collinsville, Illinois. 
The woman was nude, but for a pair of white sandals with straps and a metal ring with a heart-shaped turquoise stone on her right finger. An autopsy determined the woman had been killed from stab wounds and cuts to her neck and torso. To date, this woman, now known as the Collinsville Jane Doe, has never been identified, nor has the identity of her killer been determined. On August 5, 1989, 14-year-old Gina Dawn Brooks went out for a bike ride in Fredericktown. She never returned home. According to a witness, Gina was forcibly removed from her bike and taken into a vehicle by up to three unknown men. Nathan Danny Williams would later be arrested and charged with Gina's rape, but not her murder. Unfortunately, the unreliability of a key witness in the case resulted in prosecutors charging Williams only with the sexual assault. Bryant Squires, who was dying of cancer while in prison, made a deathbed confession to two nurses implicating himself and Williams in the abduction, rape, and murder of Gina. According to Squires, he drove the vehicle while Williams grabbed Gina, pulling her into the back of the car where he ultimately killed her. Timothy Bellew, Squires' best friend, was also implicated and would later state that he was present when Williams killed the teenager. Following multiple interviews with Williams, some investigators believe he may have been responsible for up to two dozen murders across the country. 34-year-old Nancy Leah Brannon was last seen at approximately midnight on November 26, 1986, at a business in the vicinity of Grand and Delor in St. Louis. She has never been seen again. Her vehicle, a brown two-door 1983 Dodge Charger, was found the next day at her apartment complex in the 7500 block of Watson Road in Shrewsbury. Brannon's purse was found 10 feet from her car with money, credit cards, and keys all inside. It appeared to investigators that Brannon had been grabbed and abducted by someone after parking her car and while making her way towards the apartment building. Her remains have never been found, nor have any arrests been made in her case. Perhaps one of the most similar cases to Diana's disappearance. Missing from a parking lot just four months earlier and 30 miles away. 14-year-old Regina K. Walters was reported missing in February of 1990 when she ran away from her family's home in Pasadena, Texas with 20-year-old Ricky Lee Jones. Seven months later, on September 29th, her nude and badly decomposed body was found in the loft of an abandoned barn near Greenville, 51 miles east of St. Louis. An autopsy revealed she had been strangled to death. Ricky Lee Jones' body was found 440 miles away in Harleton, Texas. He had been shot in the head. In the early morning hours of April 1, 1990, an Arizona Highway Patrol officer came upon a disabled truck with his hazard lights on on the side of Interstate 10 near Casa Grande. Inside, the officer discovered the driver, identified as Robert Benjamin Rhodes, as well as a nude woman handcuffed and screaming for help. She was later identified as Kathleen Vine. Rhodes was charged with aggravated assault, sexual assault, and unlawful imprisonment. Further investigation at Rhodes' home led to the discovery of nude photos of a woman later identified as being Regina K. Walters. Photos of another victim, Patricia Candace Walsh, were also found. In 1994, Rhodes was convicted of first-degree murder in the case of Regina Walters and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. He was extradited to Utah in 2005 to be tried for the murders of Candace Walsh and her husband, Douglas Ziskowski. 
However, at the request of the family, the charges were dropped as they did not want to have to testify against Rhodes in more than one trial. He was later extradited to Texas, where he faced murder charges for Regina Walters and Ricky Jones. In exchange for dropping the death penalty, Rhodes pled guilty. He is referred to today as the truck stop killer. 19-year-old Robin Mahan was last seen alive on March 22, 1990. On March 26th, her body was found alongside Highway E near Silex in Lincoln County. Her hands had been tied and her body had been stuffed between two mattresses. An autopsy determined that she had been strangled. Three months later, 40-year-old Donna Reitmeyer was last seen alive on June 3, 1990. Eight days later, her nude, badly decomposed body was found in a plastic trash can on a sidewalk near Gasconade Street and South Broadway. Due to decomposition, her cause of death could not be determined. However, investigators noted that there were signs of violence on her body. The next victim was a Jane Doe, whose badly decomposed remains were discovered on October 4, 1990, in a plastic trash can alongside a roadway near Page Boulevard and Interstate 270 in Maryland Heights. She was found with her hands tied, and it was determined that she had been smothered and strangled. In March of 1991, the Jane Doe was officially identified as 27-year-old Brenda Jean Pruitt. Brenda had been reported missing by family members five months prior to the discovery of her body. 21-year-old Sandra Little was reported missing on September 4, 1990. Five months later, on February 17, 1991, her body was found stuffed in a wooden box along I-70. Curiously, Sandra Little is the last person known to have seen Sandra Kane alive. Three months later, in May of 1991, the body of 37-year-old Sandra Kane was found along I-44. While an autopsy could not determine a cause of death, it was considered possible that she had either been struck by a car or had been thrown off the overpass. Reportedly, Sandra Little had advised Sandra Kane against getting into a station wagon with a certain man, but Kane ignored her warning. The murders of Mihan, Reitmeyer, and Little were linked by the manner in which their bodies were found, the last locations they had been seen at, and the manner in which they had been killed. Investigators believed they were looking for a serial predator. In 1991, the FBI joined investigators in developing a profile of the killer, which led to a 34-year-old St. Louis resident. He was questioned but denied any involvement. In April of 2022, investigators from the St. Charles County Police Crime Lab linked 73-year-old Gary Randall Muehlberg to one of the murders. DNA evidence found at one scene was fed into CODIS, at which time it immediately matched a DNA sample from Muehlberg. Muehlberg, at the time, was serving a life sentence for the 1993 murder of Kenneth Atchison. During meetings with investigators, Muehlberg would confess to the murders of Mahan, Pruitt, and Little. After being informed that they would not seek the death penalty, Muehlberg confessed also to the murder of Donna Reitmeyer and another Jane Doe. He has been charged with four counts of first-degree murder. I know that was a lot of information to go through, but I thought it was important to go over these cases. Remember, back in the early 90s, these were cases they considered likely to be connected to one or two serial killers. In the end, outside of Muehlberg and Rhodes, 
the crimes were primarily random, and when they did involve serial offenders, in only one instance did that predator specifically target the St. Louis area, as Rhodes had traveled the country and selected victims from all over. Most of Muehlberg's victims had worked as sex workers, and he went hunting by driving into an area of St. Louis known as the Stroll, a popular spot for sex workers, at which time he could offer them cash to get into his vehicle. Once they were alone with him, their chances of survival rapidly plummeted. We'll be digging much deeper into Gary Muehlberg in a future episode. Unfortunately, while many cases were going unsolved, Diana's continued to grow cold. It seemed with the passage of each year, the case fell further and further from the spotlight. March of 1992 marked five years since Diana had vanished, and despite all of the efforts of police, the family, and private investigators, the answers remained out of reach. Asked for her thoughts after so much time, Jane Braungard told the Post-Dispatch, quote, We have no significant leads over the past five years. We just want to know. If she's dead, we want to know how she died, and we want her remains so we can bury her. If she's alive, we want to reach out to her. It's been five years now, but it's still so fresh sometimes. I can see her smile, and I can hear her laugh. End quote. Detectives appeared to have no more information than they did years earlier when they'd openly admitted that they had no idea where Diana could be or what might have happened to her. Crystal City Detective Mark Maitland noted they had formed a special task force the previous summer in hopes of developing new leads, but it didn't come to fruition. As he explained, quote, nothing concrete came out of it, no concrete leads. A couple of witnesses underwent hypnosis, but nothing came of that either, end quote. That statement can essentially apply to the rest of the 90s, as there would come no new developments in this case until the spring of 2001. Nathan Danny Williams, who had been charged with rape in the case of 14-year-old Gina Don Brooks, had committed his crime with two others. Investigators believe that one of the men who may have worked in conjunction with Williams could be connected to Diana's abduction. At the time of Diana's disappearance, Williams was in prison serving time for sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl in a garage in St. Louis. Dan Buskin, then chief of the Crystal City Police, explained that further investigation into Williams and his associates was warranted in terms of Diana's case. He explained, quote, Yes, recent revelations have definitely piqued our interest. We have some fresh information that we hope leads us to some further information. End quote. While we cannot know what investigators discovered about Nathan Williams or any of his associates, his name does not often come up in association with this case, and he has not been mentioned in years. In April, Detective Jeff McCreary noted that the Crystal City Police were working in tandem with Texas law enforcement to determine whether or not Tommy Lynn Sells might have been involved in Diana's disappearance. Sells is notorious for taking credit for crimes he did not commit and in some instances claiming involvement in crimes which may have never happened at all. Sells claimed he'd committed his first murder at 15 when he broke into a home and found a man sexually assaulting a child. This murder has never been confirmed. Sells has been involved in several different murders, some of which include, in 1983, Sells moved to St. Louis, where he would go on to beat a woman and her daughter, Colleen and Tiffany Gill, to death with a baseball bat. 
On October 15, 1987, Sells drugged Stephanie Stroh with LSD before strangling her. He then claims that he encased her body in concrete and dumped her in a hot spring. Her remains have never been located. In May of 1992, Sells sexually assaulted, stabbed, and beat Fabian Witherspoon, who survived the attack and notified authorities. Sells was arrested and sentenced to a minimum of two years, being released in 1997. His final murders occurred on December 31, 1999, when he broke into a home and sexually assaulted Kayleen Harris before stabbing her 16 times and slashing her throat. He then went after Crystal Surlis, slashing her throat as well. Surlis survived and was able to seek help with a neighbor. Sells was arrested on January 2nd. While Sells confessed to over 70 murders, he was ultimately sentenced for the murder of Harris and the assault on Searles, receiving a death sentence. He was executed by lethal injection at the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville on April 3, 2014. While he has been partially linked to some of the crimes he confessed to, it can't be proven that he committed as many murders as he claimed, and in some instances, he was directly ruled out as being a suspect. Whether or not he played a role in Diana's case has never been determined, though he is no longer mentioned as a possible suspect by most law enforcement agencies. Then, there was Corey L. Fox. Fox was arrested in 2001 and charged with the murder of a Hillsborough man dating back to 1996. Fox confessed to the murder of Ronnie Bolin, a one-time minister, noting that he had abandoned his car in St. Louis after the crime. Detective Charles Bennett interviewed Fox at the Madison County Jail where he was being charged with the murder of Donald Capel at Capel's home in Rosewood Heights. During his interviews with detectives, Fox allegedly claimed knowledge that two men had been involved in the abduction and murder of Diana Braungard. However, Fox admitted guilt in cases he could not have been involved in, and detectives grew to believe that he was feeding them a lot of accurate information mixed in with a lot of lies and disinformation in order to confuse the cases against him. Whether or not Fox possessed actual knowledge of Diana's case, or if it was just more lies, has never been determined. But Fox's name is not often mentioned in association with this investigation. Two years later, in 2003, reporters came out to interview Diana's family on what would mark the 16th anniversary of her disappearance. By this time, the Braungards had left Festus, moving to St. Charles where Marvin was offered a new position with the church. Diana had disappeared at the age of 18, and if alive, would have turned 34 in 2003. While they have not forgotten their daughter, nor the pain of her loss, her parents have tried to continue on. As Marvin explained, quote, It's not the way that it was in those first few weeks and months, and even years afterwards. You have to get on with your life, but it's always there. End quote. Former Crystal City Police Chief Glenn Boyer left the department and was elected sheriff of Jefferson County. However, he took all of his files on Diana's case with him, a case that he admitted continued to haunt him even 16 years later. Sheriff Boyer expressed his frustration, telling the Post-Dispatch, quote, That case has been gone over and over and over again. Unfortunately, we just keep coming up with the same conclusion, that she's missing. End quote. While the case had grown very cold and there hadn't been any new leads in years, 
That would start changing just one year later. In March of 2004, investigators in Jefferson County decided to look over the case with fresh eyes. Crystal City detectives Chad Helms and Mike Prunow took over the investigation and were determined to break it open. Detective Helms explained, quote, There's been a lot of good investigation done over the years. We're just hoping we'll come across something that will put an ending to this. End quote. Detective Prunow was a high school sophomore when Diana vanished. His stepmother was a supervisor at the venture store where she worked, and she had worked that night. Prunow still remembers how police called the next morning before he left for school, wanting to speak to his mother about anything she might have seen the night before. Detective Helms was a freshman at Herculaneum High School in 1987. He remembered the case well, and in certain circles, it was still discussed by those who knew or were around when it happened. While Prunow and Helms took over the case in late 2003, their biggest break came four years later, in the spring of 2007. During routine procedure, a criminal profiling student identified a man in the Missouri Department of Corrections as fitting the composite drawn up based upon the man who was seen speaking to Diana in the parking lot moments before she vanished. Detectives Helms and Prunow went and interviewed the man who was serving a life sentence for murder. At the time, when asked whether or not they believed he was a viable suspect, the detectives noted that he fit the composite, he fit the descriptions given by witnesses, and after interviewing him, quote, he hasn't given us a reason to clear him, end quote. While at the time the suspect was not identified, he has since passed away, and it was reported that his name was Marvin Cheney. In May of 1995, Cheney was 34 years old and was hanging out with his half-brother, 20-year-old Jesse Rush. Rush, who was a big talker, told several people about the fact that he and Cheney had been responsible for the abduction and murder of Trudy Darby. At 10 p.m. on January 19, 1991, Darby, who was working at a convenience store, called her son and told him that there was a suspicious man hanging around outside. She was nervous and wanted her son to come down to the store and help her close up, but then suddenly the phone went dead. A local man who believed he had heard a gunshot the night Darby was abducted went down to the Little Niangua River, the direction he thought the shot had come from, at which time he found blood and blonde hair. Investigators arrived at the scene and also recovered a spent 38 shell casing. Considering the proximity to the river, they assumed her body had been dumped in the water. Three quarters of a mile downstream, they found the nude remains of a deceased female. She had been shot twice, once in the ear and once through the back and into her head. The victim would be positively identified as Trudy Darby, but investigators wouldn't make any headway until a few years later. Jesse Rush boasted about the crime to no less than three different people, so police came to interview him. At first, Rush denied any involvement, but then laid out exactly how the murder of Trudy Darby had gone, noting to detectives that they had originally only planned to rob the convenience store. Rush claimed that he, Marvin Cheney, and another unnamed associate were involved in the crime. According to Rush, after forcing Trudy into the trunk of their car, they drove to a secluded barn where she was sexually assaulted and shot. When they took her down to the river, they discovered that she was still alive, at which time she was shot a second time before being thrown into the water. While awaiting trial, 
Rush proved he was a real bright guy, as he then told three prison inmates about his involvement in the murder, all three of whom would go on to testify against him. Rush would also go on to write several letters where he went into great detail about the murder, implicating himself as the driving force behind it. While in his discussions with investigators, he had tried to describe himself as a witness but not directly involved, in letters he made it clear that the abduction, rape, and murder were at least in part his own idea. In one letter, he wrote about how all he wanted to do was to rape Trudy Darby and then, quote, shoot her in the head and watch her brains come out, end quote. Rush was ultimately found guilty and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Cheney denied involvement and claimed that he was with his wife the night of the crime. While initially she confirmed that alibi, she later recanted, stating that she was deathly afraid of her husband. Marvin Cheney was convicted of first-degree murder and kidnapping. He was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole plus 15 years for kidnapping. According to court documents, Cheney cut a deal with prosecutors whereby he would plead guilty and provide information about the murders of three other women. However, Cheney would later argue that he had been coerced into that deal. Cheney remains a suspect in three other cases. The abduction of Angela Hammond, previously covered on Trace Evidence in episode 61. Cheney is also believed to be linked to the disappearance and likely murder of Cheryl Kenny, who vanished while working the closing shift at a quality convenience store in Nevada, Missouri, 264 miles west from where Diana was last seen. Kenny clocked out at 10 p.m. and set the store's alarm at 10.17. She never made it home, and her car was later found where she'd left it in the parking lot, leading investigators to believe that she had been accosted as she was making her way to her car. This was in part confirmed by witnesses who reported hearing a woman screaming around this time. So, Cheney was found guilty of abducting and murdering Trudy Darby and is a suspect in the case of Angela Hammond, Cheryl Kenny, and Diana Braungard, all three of whom were abducted from parking lots late in the evening. Diana clocked out at 10.02 and vanished shortly thereafter. Kenny left her store at 10.17 and disappeared within minutes. Both Trudy Darby and Angela Hammond were abducted while speaking on the telephone. Angela, using a payphone in the parking lot, and Darby using the phone inside the convenience store where she worked. The bodies of Angela Hammond, Cheryl Kenny, and Diana Braungard have never been found. Outside of all of these similarities, investigators have noted that Cheney fits both the composite image and eyewitness descriptions given in Diana's case. Cheney died in prison from a cancer-related illness in 2017 and was never charged in connection with any of the unsolved cases for which he is considered a potential suspect. His half-brother, Jesse Rush, was actually released from prison late last year. Although he had been given a sentence of life without the possibility of parole, he was technically a juvenile at the time of the crime, and following a 2012 Supreme Court ruling, which determined that sentencing minors to life was cruel and unusual, Rush's sentence was reduced, and he was granted an early release directly into an undisclosed residential parole facility in November of 2022. Whether or not investigators will find out more information, or perhaps manage to get more information out of Rush in relation to Diana or any other cases, remains to be seen. 
One final curious note about potential suspects in this case, especially considering the revelations revolving around Cheney's possible involvement, comes in the form of Larry Dwayne Hall. Hall is an interesting figure to examine, as while it's believed he may have killed upwards of 40 women between 1980 and 1994, many of which he confessed to, he is actually serving a life sentence without the possibility of parole for the abduction of 15-year-old Jessica Roche. Despite being considered a highly prolific serial killer with several cases to which he has been linked, he has never been charged with nor found guilty of a single homicide. What becomes interesting with Hall is that, as is often the case, his exploits may have been severely blown out of proportion. While investigators have no doubt that he has killed, they simply don't know how many or who exactly. While in some cases they do believe there is enough evidence to suggest a link, in others, Hall claimed responsibility and often got details of crimes wrong and lacked the ability to direct searchers to where bodies had been left. Perhaps most interestingly is that following a study conducted by the psychology department of Radford University, Diana Braungard is listed as Hall's alleged victim, despite there having never been any evidence to connect him to the case. He doesn't match the composite or witness descriptions, and no investigator directly working Diana's case has ever named Hall as a person of interest. Whether or not Hall was even involved in half of the crimes for which he has taken credit is highly debatable. At the time of his arrest and during subsequent interviews, investigators believed his information was reliable. However, as time has passed on, many have begun looking at Hall like another Henry Lee Lucas, notorious for confessing to crimes he was not responsible for. Regardless of what horrible atrocities Hall may have committed throughout his life, when it comes to the disappearances of Diana Braungard, there is nothing which connects him outside of the fact that she would have fit into his typical victim pool. So, what can you do with all of that information? Was Diana Braungard targeted in a random attack? Did she fall victim to an active or developing serial killer? Could infamous killers like Larry Dwayne Hall or Tommy Lynn Sells have been involved? Or does it make more sense to look towards Marvin Cheney, who would also fit the profile and closely resemble the composite and eyewitnesses? Still yet, investigators had to wonder, what if the crime were personal or committed by someone who knew Diana? Perhaps someone she'd met at her new modeling classes, a former co-worker, or another employee at the mall. Then again, it could have been similar to the Gina Brooks case, with more than one person forcing Diana into a vehicle against her will. There is such a thing as having too many possibilities, and also too few. But in this case, it may be the negative hit comes from having so many options, but not enough evidence to narrow any of it down. After 2010, for the most part, discussion of Diana's case died down tremendously. There were no longer headline news stories, no more articles interviewing detectives. Everything, it seemed, had grown cold. Sadly, Diana's father, the Reverend Marvin Braungard, passed away on December 9, 2015, at the age of 86. He spent the last 30 years of his life trying to find out what happened to his daughter, but in the end, he went to his grave without answers, without finding her, and without seeing her receive a proper burial. A year and a month later, on Wednesday, January 28, 2017, Jane Braungard passed away at the age of 79. In her obituary, 
Diana is listed as having predeceased her. Today, only Diana's brother, Daniel, remains, but he continues to maintain hope that someday his sister will be found and her killer or killers charged. When last seen, Diana Jane Braungard was described as being a white female with blonde shoulder-length hair and large almond-shaped hazel eyes. Diana has three small scars on her forehead, a V-shaped scar above the right corner of her mouth, and pierced ears. She was last seen wearing a Venture Store smock, a white shirt with colored print, bright turquoise pants, a short black boy's coat, and brown loafer-style shoes. She was carrying an off-white purse and would have had no more than $20 cash on her. She was last seen in the parking lot of the Twin City Mall outside of the Venture Store speaking with an unidentified male. At the time of her disappearance, Diana was 18 years old, and if alive today, she would be turning 54 on the last day of January. Today, the mall still stands, and the area where the Venture Store used to be is a harbor freight and partially an abandoned storefront. According to a witness, the unidentified man seen talking to Diana that night was described as being a white male between the ages of 35 and 40. He stood approximately 5 feet 5 inches tall, was clean-shaven with dark hair and a dark complexion. Perhaps the most notable feature was a series of small bumps the witness observed on his face. This year will mark 36 years since Diana Braungard vanished from the mall parking lot, leaving behind the family's undisturbed vehicle, but not a single clue or trace of who may have targeted her, where she was taken, or why. In the span of time that couples have married, had children, and gone on to become grandparents, Diana has always been missing. What bright future was stolen from her, what pain was delivered onto her family, and what horrors continue to exist in the desperate expanse of grief and unknowing. Even in the darkest of times, where hope seemed the weakest, the Braungards never gave up believing they would come to see the truth revealed. Asked his thoughts, after so many years, Marvin Braungard told the Post-Dispatch, quote, In a very practical sense, everybody would say there is no chance. But deep down within me, I have hope. I'm going to hang on to that as long as it's there. You really appreciate it when people remember about the case after this much time. We know that the chances of her being found alive are very slim at this time. But in your heart of hearts, you always have hope. When someone is just really good at what they do, it could be a waiter, a chef, or a doctor, then you know you're in good hands. Like when you see a chef cooking four different complicated meals all at the same time, commanding the kitchen like a general so much so that even Gordon Ramsay would be impressed. When you see that, you can't help but have some confidence. But it isn't always easy to find the best of the best. However, on ZocDoc, finding the right doctor for you is a seamless process. The quality care you need is just a few taps away in the ZocDoc app. There's nothing worse than going to a doctor's appointment and quickly learning your doctor is disinterested. Instead of listening to you intently and asking how you're feeling, the doctor's just checking the clock. On ZocDoc, you'll find quality doctors who focus on you, 
listen to you, and prioritize your care. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient-reviewed, take your insurance, available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. No more doctor roulette or scouring the internet for questionable reviews. With ZocDoc, you have a trusted guide to connect you to your favorite doctor that you haven't even met yet. Millions of people use ZocDoc's free app to find and book a doctor in their neighborhood who is patient-reviewed and fits their needs and schedule just right. Go to ZocDoc.com trace and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's ZocDoc.com trace. ZocDoc.com slash trace. If you're like me, even when you're doing your best to concentrate on reports for work, organization of your home, or even a new hobby, you're not always 100% focused and you're not always getting everything done as quickly and efficiently as you need to. Well, I've found the perfect solution in Magic Mind. I found this little shot that improved my morning so much. I love that I can take it with me anywhere and drink it whenever I need a quick energy burst. Instead of drinking that much coffee to have energy, I now drink Magic Mind every morning, and I've cut down from four cups to none. Magic Mind makes me more productive and focused. I get more done in less time thanks to the nootropics inside that improve attention, concentration, and cognition. I feel way better in the mornings, and I'm happier throughout the day thanks to the adaptogens that boost your mood and help you relax. Magic Mind is full of wonderful ingredients like ashwagandha, an adaptogen that reduces stress and anxiety, which really helps bring a level of calm and focus that's normally difficult for me to attain. If you're like me, then I can't more highly recommend Magic Mind. I love sharing Magic Mind with friends. We're all coffee addicts, and this has helped us cut back. I've been sharing Magic Mind with my family as well. My cousin has been struggling with her memory, and this little drink has some amazing ingredients that support memory and cognition. Now, with this special offer, you too can try this amazing little drink, Magic Mind. The Magic Mind team created a super offer for me to share with you. You can get up to 56% off your first subscription in the next 10 days and 20% off your one-time purchase by using the code TRACEEVIDENCE. You can also go to magicmind.co slash traceevidence and redeem the discount code traceevidence, all one word. But hurry up. The 56% discount only lasts 10 days from the airing of this episode. So visit magicmind.co slash traceevidence to get started today. On a winter night in a small community near Denver, Colorado, Jim Matthews arrived home late. He expected to find his 12-year-old daughter who'd been dropped off after a Christmas concert. But when he called out, Hi, Janelle, the house was eerily quiet. His daughter's shoes were on the floor, but she was gone. And it would be 35 years before she would be found dead. After the discovery of Jonelle Matthews' body in 2019, the police turned their attention to a man who had told law enforcement years ago that he knew something, but they had dismissed him. The man did seem obsessed with the case, but is that all he was? A true crime fanatic or a killer? Wondery in Campside Media's podcast Suspect 
is back for a second season with a story that attempts to separate one man's true crime obsession from a motive for murder. Suspect is a detailed and fascinating series about injustice and the weight and power of decisions made behind the scenes by lawyers and jurors every day. Season 2 follows the disappearance of 12-year-old Janelle Matthews. Journalist Ashley Franz discovers a myriad of leads, but focuses in on one particular suspect. But much like Season 1, Suspect will leave you seeking the answers to questions you develop as you listen. Listen to Suspect wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Amazon Prime members, you can binge the entire series ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. The disappearance of Diana Braungard is a case which received a lot of attention at the time, but over the more than three decades which have passed, has mostly fallen out of the spotlight. There hasn't been an update, the release of new information, or any directly addressed forward movement for the detectives. The last major update came back in 2007 when discussion revolved around the possible involvement of Marvin Cheney. Other names, of course, have been considered potential persons of interest. These including Larry DeWayne Hall, Tommy Lynn Sells, Nathan Danny Williams, and Corey L. Fox. The core problem in this case comes down to the dynamic contrast between a lack of evidence and a wide pool of potential suspects who committed or claimed to have committed similar crimes in and around the area. Given that there is little to work with, which kind of puts most of the suspects into a column where they can neither be ruled in or out, many people have approached this case by trying to look at the specific circumstances of Diana's disappearance to try and find what might have been missed. If it could be determined what led the assailant to focus in on Diana, some believe this may help unravel the mystery of who was involved. For the most part, it's theorized that Diana was abducted by a minimum of two people. While witnesses only stated seeing one man speaking to her in the parking lot that evening, it has been considered probable that this person worked to keep Diana busy while another assailant pulled up in a vehicle, at which time she was forced inside. Of course, like so much of this case, that theory cannot be confirmed. What we know about the night of the abduction does give some clues as to what could have happened. We know that Diana clocked out at precisely 10.02 p.m. after having made it clear that she was in a rush to get home. Her shift that night involved working the cash register, and according to several co-workers, the last man Diana rang up behaved in an odd manner. They described him as hanging around like he was waiting for someone. But whether or not another person ever joined this man and when exactly he left the store, if known, has never been reported. If indeed this guy was the same person seen speaking to Diana in the parking lot that night, it's entirely possible that he was focused in on Diana and was waiting specifically for her. The likelihood of the crime being random seems somewhat limited, unless of course the assailants were targeting the mall itself rather than any specific person. If local, they'd be aware of what time stores closed, when the parking lot was most empty, and when would be the best opportunity to try and grab a lone woman as she made her way through the parking lot. For Diana to have been stopped before she made it to her car, someone would have had to have been out there waiting for her, to engage her in conversation before she could get to the vehicle. Maybe they asked for directions or help, or maybe it was just a short, seemingly polite attempt at conversation. Either way, Someone managed to get between Diana and her car, and she never made it any further. 
One question that has come up often was whether or not there could be any link between Diana and her attacker. Was she the type who would have stopped in the parking lot to speak with a total stranger, or would she have been politely dismissive but kept moving? If it were someone she knew, the likelihood of her stopping to talk for a few minutes is higher. Some have argued that, in the weeks prior to Diana's disappearance, she had begun taking modeling classes, so it's possible that someone in that class may have developed an interest in her, one which was not requited, and so they began stalking her. Let's face it, if Diana was specifically targeted, if she was the one suspects wanted, would they have just hung out in the parking lot all night assuming she'd be walking out by herself, or would they have done their homework to figure out her schedule and which shift would leave her the most vulnerable? Remember, there were several other employees still working. Diana's car was not the only one in the lot. So did the killer already know which car was hers and was waiting near it, or were they merely watching the lot itself? I find it hard to believe that the abductor would have simply been hanging around in that parking lot in 35-degree weather, just waiting for an opportunity that may or may not come. It seems most probable that whoever was responsible for this crime had planned it out to some degree. Look at the scene. No signs of a struggle, no reports of screaming, no one noticing a woman being forced into a vehicle, no reports of a vehicle speeding away. Even the witness who saw Diana talking to the unidentified man could give little more than a description, as nothing about the encounter really stood out as strange or out of the ordinary. What is the likelihood that someone, on their first abduction attempt, is going to pull it off so perfectly without anyone seeing or any evidence being left behind? That tends to make people believe Diana was either forced into a vehicle rapidly when she was not expecting it, or perhaps the assailant brandished a weapon and forced her to go along quietly. Or perhaps she knew the person and may have gotten into their vehicle willingly, maybe to talk or for some other reason. Had there been a big struggle, there was a good chance someone would have heard or seen something. There would have been a greater probability that evidence would have been found at the scene. Diana's purse, an article of clothing, something from her pocket, hair, anything. But here, nothing was found. One of the still unsolved cases I mentioned earlier was that of Nancy Leah Brannan. Her vehicle was found in the parking lot of her apartment complex. Ten feet away, they found her purse and obvious signs of a struggle. Much like in Diana's case, they believe she had been accosted and abducted as she was walking across the parking lot, yet she left behind evidence to confirm this. In Diana's case, nothing was found, which again seems to support a rapid abduction, an abduction under the threat of a weapon, or a previously established trust between Diana and the person who would become her abductor. After thorough interviews were conducted with Diana's friends and family, two of her closest friends underwent polygraph tests, and a third underwent hypnosis. Now, we have no information about those polygraphs, so whether they were issued to ensure the friends didn't have any more information about where Diana might be, or it was done to rule them out of being involved, we simply don't know. The hypnosis aspect is very interesting, though. Typically, witnesses are only placed under hypnosis if they saw something or were present when something occurred, but they can't fully recall it. Typically, hypnosis is used to try and draw out or sharpen a memory. So. Did this person witness Diana's abduction? Did they see the strange man hanging out in the store that night? Or were they present at a completely different time when perhaps Diana spoke with or was approached by someone who could potentially be a suspect? This 
certainly makes it seem like maybe this case isn't as straightforward as it's often been reported. When you look at the case from the broadest perspective, you can see why the investigation struggled so much. It's hard to work with limited, if no evidence at all. It appears that all of the digging they did into Diana's life, her friends, family, school, and work, they weren't able to find anything which suggested she was worried about anyone, had encountered anyone who made her uncomfortable, or that she was afraid that someone was after her. For many, this suggests that Diana either did not know her assailant or simply did not suspect them. We know she worked part-time as she was in school full-time. Someone specifically looking to abduct her would have needed to know that she was working that night, be familiar with what she was driving and where she usually parked and what time she was getting off. However, there are some who believe it's entirely possible that the suspect entered the Venture store that night, saw Diana, and then became focused on her. So he hangs around and waits until maybe he hears her saying she's off or until he witnesses her logging out of her cash register and walking towards the back. At that point, the assailant goes out into the parking lot and waits. When she steps out into the night, the suspect approaches her and either with the help of another, forces her into a vehicle or uses a weapon to make her come along quietly. Looking at all the names which have been thrown around in terms of possibly being involved, there's really only one for which a direct connection can be established. But we'll begin with Tommy Lynn Sells, one of the people for whom there is the least evidence. In July of 1985, Sells worked at a carnival in Forsyth, Missouri. There, he met 28-year-old Ina Cord, who he brutally murdered, along with her four-year-old son, Rory, using the child's own baseball bat. Sells claimed that he'd caught Cord trying to steal from him. Their bodies were found three days later, but by then, Sells had left the area. Authorities theorized that Sells later boarded a train to Arkansas Pass, Texas, where he was hospitalized following a heroin overdose. After his release, he stole a car and headed west towards Fremont, California. There, authorities consider him a suspect in the murders of Jennifer Dewey, who had been shot, and 19-year-old Michelle Xavier, who'd had her throat slashed. Later, in 1986, he left California and traveled east, arriving in Winnemucca, Nevada. There, he later told authorities he drugged 20-year-old Stephanie Stroh with LSD before strangling her to death. This crime has never been confirmed. He went on to say that in the summer of 1987, he traveled further east, where he claims to have murdered 27-year-old Suzanne Kors in Amherst, New York. Suzanne's remains were recovered two miles from where she had last been seen in a field years later in 1995. If any of this information can be relied upon, it would seem, by Sell's own admission, he was in Nevada in March of 1987 when Diana vanished. Outside of Sell's confessing to a lot of unsolved homicides across the country, earning him the name the Coast to Coast Killer, no definitive evidence has ever been found to place him in Missouri in March of 1987, nor anywhere near the Twin City Mall. In addition, Despite the fact that Sells has taken credit for a whole slew of crimes, many of which can't be corroborated, Diana's name is not one he has ever given to investigators. Then there is Larry Dwayne Hall. Between the ages of 10 and 20, Hall is thought to have been involved in multiple incidents of arson, vandalism, and petty crime. His first alleged victim is 14-year-old Deanne Marie Pyle Peters, who disappeared from Forest Hill Central Middle School in Grand Rapids, Michigan. 
Curiously, investigators have two potential suspects in that case with no direct connection to Hall. Bruce Bunch, then 17 years old, allegedly struck Deanne with his car, killing her. Bunch told different variations of that story to several people, including two of his ex-wives. While Bunch died in 2008, in 2021, authorities announced their belief that Bunch was responsible for Deanne's disappearance and murder. In July of that year, investigators stated that James Douglas Frisbee had been charged with perjury in connection with Deanne's case. While they believe Bunch committed the murder, they also believe Frisbee possesses pertinent information about the crime, which occurred when he was 21 years old. Just to give another example of how flawed much of the investigation has been surrounding what crimes Larry Hall may or may not have been responsible for, if we look at the second case that is already connected to him, it is the 1981 disappearance of 12-year-old Deborah Jean Cole, who was last seen at her home in Lebanon, Indiana. The 12-year-old had apparently been left at home with her mother's live-in boyfriend, Omer R. Steve Bebout. Two years later, in 1983, Deborah's sister Frances disappeared from the family home. Her body was found three days later. She had been sexually assaulted before being shot in the back. In 1999, DNA evidence conclusively linked Bebout to Frances's assault and murder and investigators believe he was also responsible for Deborah's disappearance. The more you work your way through Hall's alleged crimes, the more you'll find that in a lot of cases, investigators already have a strong suspect or they possess evidence that points away from Hall. Again, like with Sells or Lucas, Hall seems to like to involve himself in cases for which he could not have been responsible. That surely isn't to say that none of the cases he has been linked to were in fact crimes he committed, but to swallow the frequently spouted claim that he was one of the most prolific serial killers in American history seems to be somewhat of a stretch when you actually look at the evidence. Much like the two cases previously discussed, Diana Braungard's disappearance is listed as linked to Larry Dwayne Hall. The problem is, how he is allegedly linked has never been explained. It appears to be a situation where he committed similar crimes, so there's a chance he was guilty here as well. Is that enough to include Diana's name on his list of alleged victims? I certainly don't think so. And based upon the statements of detectives working her case, they don't seem to think so either. So then we turn our attention towards Marvin Cheney. We know he was active in the area. We know he was involved in at least one murder where he and his half-brother abducted Trudy Darby from a K&D convenience store in Max Creek on the evening of January 19, 1991 four years after Diana vanished. Cheney, Jesse Rush, and a third suspect, possibly Marshall or Greg Cheevers, robbed the cash register of $200 before forcing Trudy into the trunk of their car. She was then taken to a nearby barn where she was sexually assaulted and shot before being taken to the river where, learning she was still alive, she was shot a second time. Jesse Rush, who was 15 at the time of the crime, would have been only 11 at the time Diana was abducted. This has led many to believe that she may have been targeted by Cheney or perhaps an accomplice, and similar to Trudy Darby, was abducted at gunpoint from the parking lot as she made her way towards her car. The other cases for which Cheney is considered a suspect include the disappearance of Angela Hammond and Cheryl Kenny. Kenny disappeared from a convenience store on Business 71 Highway in Nevada, Missouri, 
264 miles west from where Diana vanished. In terms of Angela Hammond, investigators stated in recent years that they believe her abduction, and likely murder, may have been a matter of mistaken identity and could have been related to the drug trade. However, all official law enforcement sites still state that the disappearances of Kenny, Hammond, and Darby are believed connected to Marvin Cheney. Angela Hammond disappeared from Clinton, Missouri, not that far from where Kenny vanished. According to investigators, Cheney fit both the composite image and the witness description of the man seen speaking to Diana the night she vanished. Cheney's half-brother, Jesse Rush, alleged that he had been involved in at least three similar crimes with Cheney. However, he would have been too young to have been involved in Diana's. For investigators, though, they continue to believe that either Cheney or perhaps the third man who had been working with the half-brothers, or a combination of them, could have been responsible for abducting Diana. Much like in Angela and Cheryl's cases, Diana's body has never been found, nor was any solid evidence recovered. All three disappeared from parking lots at night. While Angela was talking on the phone, the crime for which Cheney was convicted, the murder of Judy Darby, also involved the abduction of a woman while she was on the phone. Cheney had allegedly planned to tell investigators about three murders he had been involved with, but following the recanting of his confession, little is known about what, if any, information he gave. When asked about the man in prison who they had interviewed for this case, later stated to have been Cheney, all investigators would say was that he fit many pieces of the investigation and failed to give them a reason to clear him. That certainly doesn't confirm that Cheney was involved in Diana's disappearance, but it definitely doesn't rule him out either. So, sadly, as the 36th anniversary of Diana's disappearance approaches, her case seems to have stalled. Whether it's due to a lack of evidence, the deaths of potential suspects, or the inability to find Diana, the likelihood of her case being solved shrinks a little more each year. Unless someone comes forward with more information, Diana's body is found and physical evidence can be utilized to identify a suspect or someone outright confesses. The disappearance of Diana Braungard will remain open, unsolved, and very cold. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you're looking for more information about the disappearance of Diana Braungard, there are many news articles and forums discussing her case. The most helpful research resources for this episode came from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and the Daily Journal. If you have any information about the disappearance of Diana Braungard, please contact the Crystal City Police Department at 636-937-4601. Her case number is 210-F80. What do you believe happened 
tweet me at TraceEvPod, email me at TraceEvidencePod at gmail.com, or comment in the Facebook group. At this time, I'd like to take a moment to thank our amazing Patreon producers. Alicia Lorraine, Andrew Guarino, Anne Bertram, Camelia Tyler, Christine Greco, Danny Renee, Deirthy, Denise Dingsdale, Diane Dyson, Eloanne Meyer, Fabulous TT, Guillerme Pinto, Jennifer Winkler, Julie A. Mangano, Justin Snyder, Kara Moreland, K.Y., Lars Jensen Fangel, Leslie B., Madison LaHoulier, Marla Wright, Melissa Brekhuizen, Nick Mohar Shures, Sarah Lyons, Travis Skepko, Stacy Finnegan, Stephanie Joyner, Stephanie Eve, Tiffany Nelson, and Tom Radford. Without your amazing support, this show would not be possible. So thank you all so much for contributing to Trace Evidence. One quick reminder, if you're planning on attending CrimeCon this year in Orlando, Florida, use promo code TRACE at CrimeCon.com to save 10% off your pass. Once again, that's promo code TRACE at CrimeCon.com. If you're interested in learning more about this case or other cases featured on the show, please visit Trace-Evidence.com. There you can find case breakdowns, all social media links, merchandise shops, case descriptions, media, and options for donating, including PayPal and Patreon, should you wish to support the show. This concludes our look into the mysterious and disturbing 1987 disappearance of Diana Braungard. I want to thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join me next week for another unsolved case on the next episode of Trace Evidence. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.